собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. You can help support the podcast by going to my Patreon page, at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and click on the Patreon button and join the table of ranks. There's a growing scholarship concerning disability in Russia, and I'm very pleased that my first interview of 2018 is with Claire Shaw on her book, Death in the USSR, Marginality, Community, and Soviet Identity, 1917 to 1991. The history of the deaf in Russia is an incredible and unexpected story that challenges many of our assumptions about marginality and identity in the Soviet system, and how deaf people constructed a vibrant community representing their own interests. Also, I should state that given the nature of this history, people who experience the world without sound, there will be a written transcript of this interview. I'll post it to the website in a few weeks. Claire Shaw is an associate professor of history at Warwick University, specializing in the history of the Soviet Union, with a particular interest in the formation of Soviet identity and the history of marginal groups. She's the author of Death in the USSR, Marginality, Community, and Soviet Identity, 1917-1991, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Claire Shaw. So I, I thought we'd start this conversation by having you talk about the origins of your, of your work on, on deafness in Russia. So how did you come to this topic? Well, it was a question of two things coming together in a rather unexpected way, actually. Um, so my dad was a teacher of the deaf. So I spent my formative years living in the grounds of a boarding school for the deaf called the Mary Hare Grammar School in the UK. Um, so the deaf world was something that I was very familiar with. I was familiar with, you know, what it was like to be around a big community of deaf people. So the social conventions, the technologies, the adjustments, but also of the politics of deaf activism and identity, which were really huge when I was growing up. I mean, it was not something I ever thought I'd be engaged in myself, but the deaf world was always there in the background to my world. And then as I went on to study Russian language and then history, I was becoming more and more intrigued by the idea of the Soviet project to transform society and humankind and create utopia on Earth. And I was researching this from num a number of angles, um, but I was increasingly frustrated by the fact that I couldn't find any information on what that project was like for disabled people. It was a really big gap in the literature. And that seemed really strange to me because the ideal Soviet person was always represented in such a strikingly physical way. You know, we had these muscular men and women wielding their hammers and marching through Red Square. But then when you looked for the anti-Soviet enemy, they were also portrayed as equally physically perfect. They were, you know, hiding behind their masks. They were thinking anti-Soviet thoughts. So it was always about consciousness. It wasn't about the body. And it wasn't clear what the consequences were if your body was permanently imperfect. And so I was thinking around these ideas and then the idea of looking at the deaf community occurred to me one day I was having a conversation with a teacher um, of, of Russian language and um, 
it just struck me as so right as a way into these questions because you have the physicality but you also have the fact that deafness adds this extra dimension which is language and if you know your marks of course um, you know that consciousness is not innate but it is created through social interaction so what happens if you can't interact if you can't speak and you can't hear you know where do these people then fit in society right this is something that i was just thinking about as you were talking about the the physical limitations because deafness is an also an experiential uh, uh life and how do you experience say the soviet project differently and, and when it's a it's an experience without sound absolutely so i have to say i wasn't initially thinking of it in those terms i was thinking of it as quite a theoretical project i had this idea that i was going to look into theories of deaf education and, and ideology and how that kind of intersected. And I was also thinking about it, I think I was anticipating quite a negative story. I was stealing myself for a story of oppression and struggle. But then as soon as I got out there into the archives and I started meeting members of the deaf community, I just found this whole world. Um, and it was a world whose history was so intimately intertwined with that of the Soviet experiment but that was also something really unique and unexpected and vibrant. These people who were living and working and socializing together and defending their own interests and advocating for their own, you know, social and cultural values within the Soviet system. So it's a kind of marginality, but pulled into the center in a way. Yeah, this is something I want to talk about uh, later in our conversation, because this is, I, I was struck by this too. I also expected uh, that negative story. And in fact, it was quite something different, but, but before, <laughs> before, before getting to that, um, it's interesting what you say, cause, uh, I have to admit one of the first times I started looking in the Puttavidito, the archival guard guide for Garf, I noticed that there was a fond for the society of the dead. It might've been the society of the blind is the one I saw. Yeah. There are the two. Right. Yeah. And, and I was really surprised that there was an organization and then, of course, an archive for this. So I, I want to ask you about, you know, the history of disability in Russia is really only a recent development. And you, and you, you know, mentioned this already when you first started thinking about this, how there is this lack of, of discussing the disabled in, in this broader context in Soviet Russia. And it's only now, you know, receiving more and more, thankfully, more and more attention. So what types of topics and questions and challenges do scholars uh, contend with in the history of disability in Russia? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that it's just thrilling to see how it's suddenly become this, become this uh, active area of research. So we had a big meeting at ACES recently, and so many people who are working on this and are really interested in disability as a topic. Um, and I think Quite often disability is seen as this niche topic. It's kind of a little marginal thing for people who are interested in that kind of thing. But what I like about it is that it actually gets you into the heart of a lot of things. It opens up many avenues of scholarship and ideas. So I think if we think about the ways in which a lot of historians think about the Soviet Union as this modern project to create an ideal body politic, um, and ha who have been tracing, I'm thinking of David Hoffman here, who've been tracing this, not just in Russia, but across Europe in the early 20th century. As soon as we start asking questions about disability, um, we create new spaces for inquiry, because if we're talking about a group of people who can't live up to a physical ideal, their experiences then help us to test the limits of these ideals. So if we think about how a society treats disabled people, but also how disabled people themselves live within the social and 
cultural constructs of the societies in which they find themselves, we then ask really profound questions about those societies. Um, and I think it then allows us to challenge established narratives and chronologies and, and look at these cultures with a new lens. So if we're asking what it means to be embodied, what it means to be human in a Russian context, it gives us a new way of thinking about Russia and of the Soviet Union. Right, right. You know, I've, I've always been, I mean, I don't know if you can speak to this, but one of the interesting ironies I, I noticed, and I've noticed that it hasn't, well, maybe it has been picked up, and I, ha I just don't know, but um, Nikolai Ostrowski, who wrote How the Steel is Tempered, which is like the main, you know, foundational text of the new Soviet person, was himself disabled. And it's, it, I, I don't know if you can comment on that relationship, but it, I always find this an interesting irony that the this you know, foundational text is written by someone who's a war veteran who's disabled because of the war. Well, Ostrovsky is such a central figure. I mean, he is the one that that all able-bodied Soviet people read about and all disabled Soviet people read about. And, and I think this, this gets us into this question of, of where disabled people can fit, because when you have this, this sort of emblematic Soviet person who is himself disabled and written as a novel written by someone who is himself disabled, it's very hard for you to then say, well, you know, disabled people aren't part of the Soviet body politic because they very much are. So Lilia Kaganovsky's book is is still, you know, is the, is the one to read about this, this idea of how this fantasy of disability is actually at the heart of the fantasy of the new Soviet person. Um, and that for me, um, it, it came out as I was, uh, that book, as I was a, a couple of years into this project and it was really, um, influential for me to think around these ideas of, of, of fantasy of embodiment and how that actually functions in the lives of people. Because you read a lot of, uh, of um, so I have a lot of memoirs of deaf people who were reading socialist realist texts about disability and saying, you know, these things are picking me up, these things are showing me what is possible. Um, so actually it helps them to sort of write themselves into the Soviet identity project. What about, what, what about the socialist realist texts were inspiring for them? I think for a lot of people, it was the fact that um, disability wasn't this gigantic um, defining feature of these characters' lives. It was simply another obstacle, one of many, which they could then, you know, use their will and their Soviet, um, their Sovietness to fight against, if you like. So, um, if you think about um, "Story of a Real Man," um, Boris Palavoy's novel. Um, uh, about the uh, the fighter pilot who loses his legs, um, and he is he is distraught. But then he has this moment where he says, "You know, I am a Soviet man," and he re, re sort of reforges himself uh, as a as a worker and finds a way to be useful. And and I have you know there are various points at which um, memoirs of deaf people were talking about reading that and and sort of seeing the world in a new way. Well, let's get more in depth into the history of this. So how is deafness understood before and then after the Russian Revolution? Well, I think the Russian Revolution is is revolutionary for deaf people. I mean, I think this is one group of people for whom the before and the after are so radically different that it just changes the world. Um, so before 1917, if you looked at the uh, Russian Empire's legal code, deaf people were equated with the insane. So they were deprived of all legal rights. They were held under a form of guardianship. So they weren't allowed to work or to own property or anything like that. Um, and they could apply to revoke the guardianship, but they could only do that if they could demonstrate that they were able to read and write and speak. 
And so this is kind of based on this understanding that without language, there can be no thought, which is actually very common, not just in Russia at the time, but all across um, Europe and the United States. So, um, so this idea that actually signing deaf people are not, are not able to think in the way that speaking, hearing people are. Um, but this, this whole construction was so radically disabling. Um, and I think it makes more sense if we think of that, the fact that most hearing people at this point were illiterate. So they couldn't have passed this test. Um, so it's not surprising that most deaf people couldn't pass this test. Um, so 1917, with this rhetoric of, of liberation from oppression, overturning hierarchies, um, this is the transformation. Um, and it, what it does is it sweeps away all of these legal restrictions governing deaf people. It enables them to become full citizens of the new state so they can stand for election if they want to, which they do. Um, they vote, they, you know, they get involved. But it, there's also a conceptual shift that happens that is really important um, because the focus moves from the idea of language and legal competence as, as a measure of inclusion and selfhood to a new model in which the ability to work is the most important thing. So to be a worker in this state makes you a king. And for deaf people, this is really important because for the vast majority, deafness doesn't stop them from, you know, wielding a hammer or working a metal lathe or becoming a, a shock worker. So in that they were able to pr pr prove their ability to be included within this new world. And they could, you know, wield a hammer and uh, do all these things through the medium of sign language if they so chose. So there's no, you know, this, this model doesn't necessarily mean um, that language is, is necessary. I mean, there are, there, are, there are sort of caveats to this. There's an understanding that or, sort of orality and speaking well is, is, is a part of a good Soviet citizen, but there's nothing in the theory, there's nothing in the ideology that says that. And so actually this is a moment where, where people can claim a new way of being. So I think this is the most important thing actually is that this, this conceptual shift happens, but it, um, it has meaning because there are deaf people there who are in a position to take advantage of it. So we have this small elite of educated deaf people um, who had fought against their disenfranchisement under czarism and who then were able to seize this revolutionary moment to break their own chains, uh, declare themselves masters of their own fate and to say to the government, this is what we want to be. Um, so this is the start of the story that I tell. And, and so this this legal and conceptual shift is just one aspect. The other, of course, is that in, by 1926, you actually have a social organization representing deaf people, the All-Russian Association of Deaf Mutes, or VOG, founded again in 1926. So what was VOG's mission? What are some of the things it did? And how, did, how were deaf people active in it? So it did anything and everything, actually. It's one of these huge kind of amorphous organizations. Um, it was founded formally in 1926, but it actually existed in some form from July 1917, so between the two revolutions. And I think it's important to understand it as a revolutionary organization. And it changes its name a few times, uh, just to be annoying, but happily it always sticks with the acronym of VOG, which is useful. <laughs> so this is what I tend to call it. Um, and it, it's, it's an organization with the goal to help deaf people break the chains and become independent. So it starts from this position of facilitating deaf people to emerge from guardianship and take control of their own lives. Um, so it functions, it functions as a Soviet social institution. Um, so it's similar to, that, to the Komsomol. Um, it's similar to trades unions or in fact to the party in the way that it works. Um, so it has a network of local organizations all the way across Soviet Russia. 
these organizations then elect their representatives to this central body and then this body makes decisions on spending and organization but also represents its members to various governmental agencies and it lobbies on behalf of the deaf community um but it's not it's not just a lobby organization it also makes money um through its deaf run workshops um and these produce everything from winter boots to motorboat engines um to in the 80s they're producing really kind of high-tech um, gadgets and gizmos um and it's part of the Soviet government, so it's within the Ministry of Social Welfare, but it's made up of deaf people and it's run by deaf people all the way through the Soviet period. So it's this strange anomaly of a deaf run organization at, sort of within the structures of the Soviet state. But it's, it's the way that I uh, like to think about it is it's that it's this huge social organization more than anything. It's, um, it's this network of clubs and social spaces that bring deaf people together and create a deaf world. Um, and not just, and also, as you point out, their families as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we have, so it's, it's, it creates a deaf family and it pulls in kind of deaf families too. Um, so, so the deaf community before 1917 had been very small. Um, and it was concentrated in the few cities that had established deaf schools. So places like Moscow and St. Petersburg and Kharkov. Uh, and these are places um, where, you know, pupils of these schools had a better chance of overturning the legal restrictions that governed them. So they had a lot more agency than in other places. So this is where deaf people tended to gather. Um, but beyond that, the vast majority of deaf people were living um, isolated in villages, they were communicating with hearing relatives through some form of home sign, um, never meeting any other deaf people. So the creation of VOG creates a deaf community, it brings deaf people together, um, provides them with services, um, things like sign language interpreting in factories and doctor's offices, um, the money that they earn through the deaf workshops are given to deaf people in the form of grants and flats and furniture. Um, and by the 1960s, Vogue is building living spaces and palaces of culture and sanatoria on the Black Sea. I mean, they had their own professional theatre, they sponsored research, they funded deaf schools. And by doing this, they're sort of pulling everything, everybody together and creating a community that wasn't there before. And this was a place in which deaf people could find a way of life and an understanding of their deafness that was really powerful and transformative. Um, so we see the kind of the deaf community and, and Vogue and Soviet identity, if you like, kind of developing together and informing each other. And loads of these deaf people married each other as well. So it becomes a kind of a family in that sense, too. And also, it, 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 after the, um, the Sovietization of Eastern Europe, it also connects people within the Soviet Union with, with other deaf people within Eastern Europe as well, right? Yes, yes. So you get a lot um, in the in the later half of the Soviet Union, you get a lot of traveling around going on. So the All Russian Society of the Deaf uh, is, is focused, as the name suggests, in Soviet Russia. There are um, equivalent organizations in Ukraine, in Belarus, in various other places. And then they make contacts with deaf organizations in Eastern Europe. Um, the later 20th century is a moment where the deaf world becomes much more interconnected. So the World Federation of the Deaf is founded in the 1950s, and that facilitates the coming together of deaf people from all over the world in congresses and various um, sort of meetings and sports meets and the, uh, the Deaf Olympics are founded as well, that kind of thing. Um, but you, there's always a specialness to the contacts between 
um, Soviet, the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. That is seen as a, as a sort of a place in which there is a particular way of being deaf that is unique and that doesn't exist elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, and I want to I want to get into these identity issues. I mean, as you started out, you you what one of the things that interests you is this relationship between the deaf and disabled more broadly uh, to the new Soviet person, um, which of course is a central project of of the communist system. So, talk a bit more in detail about this relationship between deafness and the new Soviet person. What are the the potentialities and and limitations? Because at one point. Uh, you speak about how in your introduction that it creates a thinking about the deaf in relationship to the new Soviet per, Soviet person pushes us to think about the new Soviet person in, in pluralities, uh, which I found really interesting because, as you rightly said earlier, that um, we tend to see the new Soviet person as some kind of monochrome uh, image. Yes. I think generally speaking, we do see the new Soviet person as, as this utopian ideal that is is homogenizing and and therefore marginalizing and exclusionary um and i think that that we have to question that so i mean the idea behind it of course comes from the october revolution and lenin's uh, decision to seize power in the workers name even though you know russia in marxist terms was not ready for this kind of thing and and this then means that the party acting as a vanguard has to work to creates a new society and the new people who would live in it. Um, and in many ways, these new people, I think, are seen in the ways in which the, the kind of the goals of the five-year plan are ultimately seen as almost unachievable goals, right? These kind of rational collectivist, perfect individuals who always put others' uh, needs of, uh, ahead of their own and, you know, are never selfish and are never self-interested. This seems to be um, you know an impossible dream in a way and i think the stakes for not achieving the goals of the soviet project are quite high so you know anyone who studies the purges will tell you that if you fail to be included you you are eliminated so we have a very strong sense that this is there's one way of being and if you're not that way then there's no place for you in this society but as soon as you start looking at this through a deaf studies prism or a disability studies prism, you start to get at the fact that the ideal of the new Soviet person is about a transformation or a coming into being that is constant and is always being negotiated. And therefore no one is ideal and everyone is struggling with faults and limitations and barriers that they are trying to overcome. So if we think back to socialist realism, alongside all of these disabled characters, we have characters who have, you know, who have flaws of personality, who are reckless and who through the process of, of you know, strong will and trials become much more ideal versions of themselves. Um, and in this respect, deafness ceases to be this kind of inherent problem that can, that can never be fixed it becomes another obstacle on the road to soviet selfhood uh that we can equate with with these kind of you know these problematic character flaws and various other things that just need to be dealt with and i think that 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 then transforms the way that we think about this soviet ideal and i think then it leads us to consider what the new soviet person and the idea of sovietness as an identity means for people who were on the margins of society. And I think it, in that case, it becomes less about this sort of nebulous idea. It becomes more a, a practical kind of tool of transformation. So if you show yourself to be living up of the, to the ideals of socialism, 
it gives you the power to integrate. It gives you the ability to become quote unquote normal. So if you if you become a good worker, for example, or you demonstrate your culturedness by you know reading all the right books and and you know attending plays and doing various things, uh, this is a way in which you can demonstrate your agency and your belonging. And so for deaf people, Sovietness becomes a key in a way to being part of this world that's being built. And you see this a lot in, in memoirs in the later Soviet period. A lot of deaf people talk about the way in which the revolution, you know, gave them the world. It gave them this key to independence. And that key comes through writing themselves into the Soviet project and showing themselves to be new Soviet people. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm interested in how, in a sense, we see this creation of a kind of hybrid deaf Soviet identity that was developing throughout the Soviet period. So this is a community that's apart. They're apart by choice, which is a, a separate thing, but um, a, a community that's absolutely steeped in the values of Soviet socialism and hangs on to them well after their hearing comrades had abandoned them because they are of value, I think. So deaf people in, in the Soviet Union, they, they have a community, they, they are, you know, have potential integrations within the Soviet project. Um, they also, and, and I think this is a really fascinating part of your story is, um, they, from the revolution, they are, they have a lot of agency in determining their social world, determining their institutions, advocating for their own rights. Um, so place, and, and, and you said this a few minutes ago of how, um, being, the deaf identity of deafness in in the communist bloc was particular than that of the more internationalist, the developing international deaf deaf community. So, how do you how do you understand the experience of deafness in the Soviet Union compared to that of other modern states in the twentieth century? I mean, I th you're talking about agency. I think is very important. Uh, here and an agency and tracing the agency of of deaf people in the USSR. This is partly an 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 ethical position as a historian of deafness who is not herself deaf. I think that there's been a long uh, tradition of of hearing people speaking for deaf people and denying them agency and and power. And so it's important, I think, when we write deaf history that we recognise the agency. We recognise deaf people as as subjects rather than objects of, of history. So that's really important. But it also it just jumps off the page of every source that I have read. Um, all of these people who are creating their their lives in a revolutionary sense, they, you know, they're breaking their chains, they're shaping themselves as socialist people. And I think that narrative is really important. In terms of put, placing that into uh, in this kind of bigger understanding of, of deaf history, um, and the difference between the Soviet Union and the West, I think there's a difference between the ways in which the Soviet deaf community understood and explained the difference and the ways in which I understand and explain the difference. So for me, it comes down to a tension between the social and the medical models of deafness. So um, just to, to explain this a little bit, around the 1970s, um, deaf activists and scholars in the West started advocating for a conceptual shift in the understanding of deafness. So moving from thinking about deafness as hearing loss, as something you know, rooted in the body that can never be changed, except through expert medical intervention, um, moving to an understanding of deafness as a social identity that is rooted in visual ways of being and sign language culture, and that requires 
particular um, adjustments and spaces in order to flourish. And this was a really powerful shift and it's fundamentally changed the ways in which we think about deafness, um, moving from thinking about it as a negative lack to a positive gain. Um, so I think it, we think about things like the fact that this deaf activist turn um, pioneered the use of capital D deaf to refer to a social cultural deaf identity um, and as well as you know co coining the term audism to refer to hearing discrimination against deaf people and their culture so these are really significant things uh, but what's fascinating to me is that i think we see this social model of deafness present in the ussr from the revolution really um and i think this is mostly to do with marxist theory so this idea that the social experience is really everything um and it's much more important than the body and we see this in various other studies of this um so i'm thinking of trish stark's um body Soviet. Um, it's partly as well, I think, to do with the fact that medical and educational intervention wasn't as developed um, in uh, Tsarist Russia and therefore in early Soviet Russia too. But really, the early deaf activists were so united in their belief that the right institutional frameworks and social interventions would allow them to become what they call full-blooded Soviet people. Um, so in fact, the deafness is, is, is less of the issue than the way in which society is structured. And I think the fact that you see this in 1917, when in fact in the West, we're talking about this in the 1960s, 1970s, I think is extraordinary. Of course, it's not, it's not straightforwardly mapped and it's not a straightforward rejection in the USSR of medical understandings of deafness. In fact, the two things I think are intertwined with each other. So when you, when you look at the ways in which um, Soviet deaf people talk about their deafness, they see it as at the same time an embodied identity and a cultural one, as a tragedy and a joy. And quite often they're celebrating and they're denigrating their deafness at the same time. And sometimes their language kind of moves into slightly dodgily audist territory, but um, they really, really see what they're doing as a way of overcoming deafness and allowing deaf people to just take their place in the world. But they want to do it through being together and i think this is the really significant thing and this is again where it maps in interesting ways against the west um scholars of deafness in in the us for example like christopher krentz have talked about um the power of the deaf liberation narrative this um this desire of deaf people at various points in history to relocate to places where they could escape prejudice and manage their own affairs and to me i kind of think that Vogue is that self-sustaining deaf world because it's formalized and it's institutionalized in ways that are not seen elsewhere. And if there are ever any attempts by the state to kind of pull it apart and integrate it within the Soviet structures of governance, there's always this massive pushback from the deaf community saying, you know, only we can understand our own problems, only we can make ourselves Soviet. So, you know, they're always wanting to be together. But it, at the time, it doesn't quite translate across the borders um, of the Soviet world. Um, and I'm, I'm actually at the moment trying to get into this a little bit in, in some um, new research about how this was propagandized internationally in the late Soviet period. And they don't really spell out the significance of this deaf world at all. The way that they, um, sh the way that they talk about this in international propaganda was that you know capitalism is inherently cruel and socialism is the only system in which deaf people can thrive. And this is partly to do with the realization of deaf people's own talents but it's mostly to do with the care of the state that's the way that they put it forward um so actually deaf people in eastern europe and the soviet union are happy because the state cares for them 
And this, of course, then obfuscates the uniqueness of the Soviet deaf community. And of course, it goes down terribly badly in the West, where deaf people are trying to overturn the paternalistic attitudes of the hearing majority. Um, so it's, it's a miscommunication that's quite unfortunate. Um, but it means that telling the story has real resonance, because I don't think it's been heard before. No, it certainly hasn't. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I certainly didn't know it. So um, for my own personal, um, you know, knowledge, it's it's a quite a, an amazing story. Um, now, World War II is really a defining moment historically for disability uh, in the Soviet Union more broadly. Just just in the sheer numbers of disabled people explodes because of the uh, of the uh, mass, you know, the, of the war. Um, so how does how does the notion of deafness change after World War II? And, and speak more about because we've spoken a lot about the pre-war period, but it you really get a further institutionalization of providing services, welfare, but also social institutions for the deaf community. So how does World War II change things? Well, World War II is a is a game changer, but it isn't at the same time. Um, it's it's a really big watershed, but I don't think it necessarily um, changes the way in which the Soviet deaf community are thinking about themselves and their own Sovietness. It just shifts, I think, the 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 means by which they're trying to prove that, if you like. Um, so you're right that the vast numbers of disabled veterans that flood back into society after the Second World War change the public profile of disability. So this means a lot of money that is being put into the social support of disabled people, but also a recognition um, of organizations like VOG. Um, they become seen as experts in the task of rehabilitating disabled people and bringing war, war veterans back into productive life. So actually the what they're doing, the project of, of transforming deaf people in the Soviet mold suddenly is invested with new status, which I think is quite important. But also we have this, this huge change in society that's provoked by the experience of war. Um, the trauma of the occupation, the massive loss of life, transforms the relationship between individuals and society. And then we, after the death of Stalin, we see the kind of opening up of new spaces um, for alternative identities and institutions. And this then changes quite a few things for, for the Soviet deaf community. I think one of the biggest things is to do with welfare, as you said. Um, welfare was always really, problematic in the early Soviet period because it was seen as a form of charity and charity was seen as disabling. It was seen as a sort of sign that uh, that deaf people were not fully part of society, that they were in a, in a position of, um, well, I can't think of a word here. Yes, dependence, absolutely, and a position of dependence. So um, they would always uh, say that they did not want to have any welfare, they did, didn't want to have any support in that sense. They wanted to work, they wanted to earn their own money, they wanted to be independent. But in the post-war period, we see welfare becoming something that all Soviet citizens demand. So they had suffered, the rewards for that suffering would be a new materiality, a new way of living that, um, that in, involved support from the state. And so actually what you see is deaf people starting to assert their Sovietness by demanding and accepting welfare and benefits. I mean, it's slightly more complicated because most of the material support that they're getting comes through VOG and VOG takes no subsidies from the state after 1954. So this is deaf people financially supporting other deaf people. 
Um, so it's not, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. But actually what it shows is that is there's a, a sense that deafness um, necessitates material reward. And this is actually being very publicly stated. But then you, you move from that into the Thor. Uh, and I think this is where sort of the, the, the changes from the war start to kind of uh, open up in new ways. So the opening up of the new spaces for debate um, sh create, uh, create a kind of a sense that deaf culture can come into its own, I think. Sign language uh, becomes much more um, overtly used. There are linguistic studies of sign language. The state starts to sponsor courses for interpreters. Um, there's a professional sign language theatre, the Theatre of Sign and Gesture, which uh, operates from 1957, and this becomes very, very popular amongst hearing society in Moscow, and then goes on tour around uh, Eastern Europe. And so deafness becomes kind of one of the many alternative identities that are starting to proliferate in this period. Um, so actually, you see deafness becoming a much more confident cultural identity at this point. I mean, it's it's not always positive, and I think we have to acknowledge that. So the Khrushchev era is really interesting because it's known as this era of liberation from the, you know, from the winter of Stalinism, from the strictures of Stalinism. Uh, but it's also accompanied by this renewed push towards the utopian communist future. So we have this promise that communism is coming by 1980. And what this means is that Soviet citizens have to be ready and they, you make them ready by instilling behavioral norms and policing individuals who don't conform to that. Um, and there's suddenly we have this moral code of the builder of communism. And this leads to a lot of panic in the deaf community um, about the dangers of being too overtly deaf in public spaces. Um, so there's a push against signing in the street, for example. So signing in the theater is good because that is artistic and that is cultural, but signing in the street is just being different and different is not quite what you want really. So you see this tension all the time between inclusion and exclusion, even as deafness is having this kind of massive cultural moment, you're getting deaf characters in mainstream films in the 1960s, which I think is quite extraordinary. How does the history of deafness provide us a different understanding of the Soviet experience? Because you started out by, by pointing out you know, the physical issues in relationship, say, to the new Soviet person. And so it, there's a different physical experience, but then you also state there's a different experiential experience in the sense of the sensory world. Uh, so how does looking at the deaf give us a different understanding or a different narrative of, of the Soviet system? Well, I think it forces us to question a lot of the things that we think we know about the Soviet Union. And I think, I mean, we've spoken about this a little bit already, but I think it challenges our view of the USSR as, as you know, a homogenizing place that is really um, exclusionary towards people who might be different in some way. Um, and I think we see that because deaf, the deaf community really comes into being as a product of Soviet socialism. It comes into being through deaf people engaging with the frameworks of Soviet identity and claiming their place within the Soviet body politic. But in order to do that, they don't have to cease to be deaf. They don't have to deny their difference, which I think is really important. So you see Vorg fostering a form of identity that is at the same time Soviet and distinctly deaf. So it's deaf in the sense of, of a set of institutional frameworks and visual spaces and a distinct culture that is rooted in sign language. And the fact that this identity um, well, these two identities can coexist and inform each other. I think it tells us something new about the Soviet experience. 
this idea that a, a plurality of identities can exist within the Soviet space. I, I don't think that's something that we often think about when we think about the USSR. Right. I think, and this is something that uh, scholars of nationalities have been noting too, and that is the, the ability to maintain difference within the broader context of Soviet, right? You know, based on this very famous slogan. Um, so I think that's actually something worth really pointing out. And, and also too, you know, as you state, the agency of deaf people to foster, maintain, and legitimize that difference. Yes, absolutely. So I think there's a very interesting parallel there between um, deafness and nationality, sort of minority nationalities within the Soviet Union. So there's the famous slogan, um, national informed socialist in content, this, which was used to justify the, the proliferation of different nationalities within the USSR. There's a point at which the deaf community starts playing around with that as well and asking whether they can be deaf informed socialist in content. Um, a few people don't like that. A few people feel that's actually sort of um, advertising their difference in too big a way. But I think the fact that it's it's there is important. And I think it also helps us to understand why Vogue as an organization is so important and why why it kind of fosters this sort of institutionalized marginality that has developed by the end of the Soviet period. Um, I think if we think about uh, Bridget O'Keefe's work, she talks about how um, how the Roma in the USSR had to be Roma first in order to become so Soviet. And I think we see that with the deaf community too. So they have to be deaf first and come at socialism through the deaf culture and the deaf institutions that they have created. So there's, there's not really a way of being deaf outside of Vogue, which I think is important. But, I, and that's, but that's not something that happened because the Soviet state chose to push them into a separate organization. Actually, it happens because whenever there's a chance um, to sort of integrate, they always say, no, 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 we have to stay together. Staying together is the only way that we can achieve our independence. And, and this actually puts to it, pushes to another point that you make, at, I think, early on, that you actually uh, state, and this is something that I think might surprise many, many people, and that is Vogue is a form of a civil society. Um, can you talk a bit about that? Because that is, I mean, we tend to conceptualize civil society in very liberal terms. Um, but here you do get this organization, particularly the fact that you say by 1954, they're also financially independent, which is fascinating. So what makes you see, see Vogue as a, a, a civil society organization? I think that the question of civil society uh, is really important because we often think again about the Soviet Union as being this top-down uh, controlling system in which uh, there's there's really no space for independent debate and independent agency. But what you see with Vogue is a very, very distinct community in which an awful lot of stuff is going on really outside of the um, outside of the control of the state. I mean, Vogue is, is an organ of the state and we can't, you know, ignore that. So a lot of what it does is it, it translates the state's uh, dictates and uh, for the benefit of the deaf people within it. Um, so it, it's, it's the hub through which socialism reaches the deaf community. But at the same time, it's also a way in which the deaf community are able to lobby and to push back and to do so in really extraordinary ways, actually. Um, so I think probably one of the most... Uh, interesting examples of this um, is the case of Nikolai Buslaev, um, who 
um, who I write about, he, he's, he's one of these characters that pops up all the way through the book. Um, he lived pretty much for the, uh, for the whole of the 20th century. And so he's just there in the background of a lot of, of, a lot of things. He was a late deafened trade union activist um, who was part of Vogue since pretty much the beginning. And he got into a bit of a ding dong with Stalin um, about something Stalin had said about sign language um, on the pages of Pravda in 1950. So um, Stalin was publishing his book, um, Marxism and Questions of Linguistics. And in this article, he said that deaf mutes, um, having no language, he said, were abnormal people. And he said then that language was a sign of progress and that sign was to speech what a wooden hoe was to the modern caterpillar tractor. So sign was essentially backward. Um, and Buslayev responds to this by writing directly to Stalin and telling him off. Um, it's this very long, extraordinary letter. It's very polite and respectful, but it's quite forceful. He points out, you know, only deaf people can know what issues face other deaf people. And Stalin has got it wrong. Um, and when I first read this, I thought, oh dear, this is, can only end badly. Uh, right. But especially considering the, the time period, I mean, the, the early 1950s, this is the point at which Stalin is, is lashing out left and right against people who he perceives as, as, as wronging him. Um, but what happens as a result is that Stalin tasks his right-hand man, Malenkov, to conduct studies into the position of deaf people in the USSR. This then leads to sweeping new legislation on social and cultural services for deaf people. Um, and there are these, there are many of these moments where deaf people through Vogue are insisting on their unique right to speak truth to power in the name of their own community. And I, I don't know, I don't see how we can see this as anything but civil society. Uh, and, and finally, so what you, you mentioned um, briefly throughout that Vogue continues to exist uh, in a, some form today. So what are the legacies of, of the Soviet experience of deafness in, in Russia today? Oh, it's a problematic legacy, I think. Um, I mean, Vogue is still in existence, but it's a very different organization to the one that existed in the Soviet Union. And this is partly because of what happens in 1991. We see with the collapse of the Soviet economy, we see the collapse of Vogue as a money-making organization. So it loses a lot of its factories and its social spaces. Um, and it no longer has the capacity to provide the sort of sweeping social services that were part of its remit before. Um, but what we also see is the fact that the deaf community was so much a Soviet creation and it was imbued with Soviet ethics and practices. And this really doesn't translate well into the new Russia. Um, there's a lack of experience of integration for one. So most deaf people had worked in Vogue workshops or in deaf brigades in factories. So it's very difficult for them to get jobs because there aren't that many hearing enterprises that have any experience of working with deaf people. And then it's made worse by this sort of extraordinary thing that happens in the 1990s, um, which starts with Yeltsin's attempt to provide additional funding um, and social support for disabled groups. Um, so what he tries to do, um, because all of this social support has, has disappeared and the welfare net um, has disappeared, he uh, decides to support disabled people by exempting um, any enterprises that were staffed by disabled people from export and import taxes, which then makes them a prime target for the various mafia organizations that are functioning in Russia at the time. And in the mid-1990s, um, there are several high-ranking Vogue members 
gunned down in mafia hits on their doorsteps. This then hits the newspapers and this juicy story of the deaf mafia gets fictionalized in 1998 um, in a film called Land of the Deaf by Valery Todorovsky, which features a deaf mafia boss called the pig who is kind of pitiful and terrifying in each equal measure. And unfortunately, this is actually what many people still think about when you ask them about the deaf community in Russia today. They, they think about the deaf mafia. It's one of the first things that they'll say. Um, I mean, things are starting to change. Uh, there's been something of a transformation in education. Um, there are a number of bilingual schools, bilingual sign speech schools that have opened up um, and are producing very educated deaf graduates. Um, Lots of uh, cochlear implant technology has been brought into Russia more recently. This is, again, slightly problematic. There's a sense amongst various deaf activists now that cochlear implants are being seen as a kind of magical cure and a reason why there doesn't need to be any social support for deaf people these days. So, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, really. Um, but, but things are starting to change a little bit. And there is a changing cultural vision of deafness too. So um, one of the most interesting things that happened um, this decade uh, was uh, Sergei Laban uh, in his 2011 film Dust included a, um, a deaf actor, Alexei Znamensky, doing a sign song version of Kino's anthem uh, Perimien at the end of his film, which then turned into a, a sort of YouTube clip that everyone was watching. Uh, so the power of sign language culture is starting to seep back into the mainstream, um, as it did in the 1960s. Uh, but again, it's not always in a good way. Um, to offset this, we have um, Miroslav Slavoshvitsky's 2014 Ukrainian film, The Tribe, which was filmed entirely in sign language with no dubbing or subtitles, and it features drug dealing and violence and rape and illegal abortion and murder. So there is the sense that there's a, a stereotype of deafness that is not going away. Um, and the fact that there is so very little money and the crackdown on foreign funded NGOs has made it very difficult for a lot of deaf organizations to function in Russia. Is there a, but is there a continued memory of this Soviet experience in which uh, deaf people in Russia today draw upon? Well, that's what's been very interesting. I think uh, around the collapse of the USSR, there was very much a sense that Vogue had ceased to be useful um, to deaf people. This was partly because in the 1970s and 80s, various hearing members of the, uh, the Soviet government had realized how much money there was in Vogue and wanted a piece of it. So they were dropping a lot of hearing um, uh, bureaucrats uh, into the Vogue structures. And it over time, it becomes less and less of a deaf-run organization, and it becomes more and more an arm of the government that actually is not very useful for deaf people. So there's a sense when you get to the glasness period that there's a very strong desire to reject Vogue and everything it stands for. But what happens in the 90s and and you know, since the millennium, there's been a rediscovery of deaf history uh, in Russia. This is partly due, uh, down, well, it's almost entirely down to a very small team of, uh, of deaf historians who are um, working to put together the history of Vogue and the history of the revolutionary experience. Um, one of them, uh, Victor Paglioni, I've worked with a lot. He's cre creating these huge volumes of uh, Russian deaf history. And there's a sense that there's, it's, it's all, coming out now and being seen as this incredibly new and exciting thing that there was this deaf revolution 
and there was this moment where deaf people were demanding um, their rights and demanding their agency and, and achieving it. And so there's a nostalgia for that too. And there's a sense that there is something, there is something unique there that, that needs to kind of come back in a way. A kind of, uh, there's a, there is a, a sort of a unique Soviet deaf experience that should be able to inform the Russian deaf future. So it's, it's trying to find ways to make that happen, if you like. That was Claire Shaw, an associate professor of history at Warwick University, specializing in the history of the Soviet Union, with a particular interest in the formation of Soviet identity and the history of marginal groups. She's the author of Deaf in the USSR, Marginality, Community, and Soviet Identity, 1917 to 1991, published by Cornell University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Oh, oh.